Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth and I am your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we explore, describe, and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies, people and results of workplace visuality of the visual workplace, the technologies of the visual workplace. We learn about them, we share them, and how they help us let the workplace speak. And the outcome, informational transparency, cultural alignment, a robust, spirited, and engaged workforce on all levels of the enterprise, not just value-add associates, but everyone, you too. So welcome, welcome. Welcome. We're going to get into the fourth and final of our mini-series on borders today. But before we do, I have a few things to say. One is, I normally say to you, visit us at our website, visualworkplace.com. There are the podcasts are there and free articles and my books and the products and services we deliver on site as we help companies convert to a workplace that speaks. And... That also includes arranging with us, if you wish, to have me or one of our affiliates work with you at your own company to help you in a visual transformation. You can email us at radio at visualworkplace.com. We are happy to help. We're going to begin our show in a moment, but I first have an announcement, one that I'm pretty excited about. So as I mentioned, today we're going to do the fourth of a four-part series on borders, But I have made a decision. I would say more accurately, you have helped me make a decision about how to continue with these shows. And I think it will be good news to many of you who are our regular listeners and perhaps to newcomers as well. We count about 20,000 regular listeners to our show. Many of you listen through iTunes, so that count is not accurate. It is approximate, and still we're very, very pleased. Sometimes it goes higher, sometimes it goes lower, but it's a very steady group, and you are throughout the world. So, typically when I prepare for a show, I count from two to four hours of preparation, silence, solitude, concentration, finding the arc, gathering the content, thinking about what are the main points. Hmm? Two to four hours. Hmm? But I travel a lot. I have heavy on-site commitments to an array of clients. Some are, are in the U.S. Others are out of the country. Mexico, we're in our fourth year, and I think that's going to be winding down. Poland, Italy. I've been recently invited to go to Russia. I find the world a really interesting place, and I always like to say yes to as many invitations as possible. But I've reached a crossroads. (laughs) It happened in November. I was in Germany presenting with my friends at the Shingo Institute. And I guess I was being greedy because I really wanted to be there. I wanted to present. I wanted to do my thing and share my knowledge. But it took a terrible toll. And It sounded like I was going to, it felt like I was going to have to give up something. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to give up my radio show. And as soon as I thought about that, I heard this gigantic no sound in my brain. No, don't do that. And I wondered, how the heck am I going to work this out? Because I come home and I have to say, I'm, I'm tired. I need recovery time. I need to just stare at a wall and, you know, clear my brain, clear my mind of questions, as Yodo said to uh, uh, to uh, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you know, when you're traveling a lot, clearing your mind of questions or of the noise is like, it's heavenly when it happens, but it's hard to come by. 
So this big no sounded in my brain because I love this show. I love the mere thought of connecting with you. You who are in Zimbabwe and Beirut and Sydney and Chengdu and London and Manchester and and Providence, Rhode Island. It's a thrill for me beyond measure. I can give to you the gift that I've been given, this field called the Technologies of the Visual Workplace, which has been so fabulously interesting to me for decades and decades. And the Visual and Visual Workplace Radio provides a powerful way to share that gift. So anyway, love one out. And I am going to continue with the show because you gave me the solution. How did that happen? I don't know. Honest to goodness, we get a lot of emails at radio at visualworkplace.com, and 23 of them came from November until about three weeks ago, 23 of them, and they all asked me to do the same thing as part of the show, and it's the solution. So how do you like this? Hmm? How about if I read my books as part of the show? I've got three of them that are really important. Some of you know my books and can get a hold of them, but some of you can't for one reason or another. Amazon doesn't deliver, or you're a little short on cash, or whatever it is. So I thought that it was a really great idea because reading my books means I'm already prepared. Reading my books means the shows will be coherent and nicely aligned. So I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm really so excited about this because I I could not figure out how to do a good job for you and still take care of the thing that's called my business. My business is also a way to get the word out. Believe me, there are so many people who don't realize visuality as an answer. I was just last night talking to a colleague in Poland And I had gone there in September, and I had done a two-day seminar, what what I call my 10 doorways, the thing I do at the Shingo Prize and for AME, et cetera. And I presented to them, and there were senior management there. There weren't any operators, which is always a, a problem when you talk about visuality because management gets all excited about it and the operators aren't there so usually management just goes downstairs and tells the operators what to do but I guess I must have made a really strong point in discussing the how to the implementation uh, requirements which is I driven and my colleague his name is Eric Blinsky he's a he's a, a really a great friend he runs a company called Four Results in Poland, and there it looks like they're going to be a very strong practitioner of my work. That is what we both hope. Anyway, he said that that the operators are just going to the rodeo with visuality. They're just doing it based on the energy that has come off of their management who went down to the floor and began to talk to them about letting the workplace speak. So he's going to send me pictures and whatever. So it's it's powerful. And I want to get the word out. But what he said is, uh, he said, you know, nobody knows about visuality around here. So he wants to be, he and his company want to be the kind of voice. And that's what I want really in as many places as possible in the world for consultants who are practitioners, for trainers who are practitioners to carry these methodologies. And to that end, we are eventually going to migrate all of the work that I do onto online systems so people can access them in that way as well. They'll be carefully narrated and also uh, have teaching designs, you know, kind of the arc and the logic of the what and the how-to. So anyway, so we've landed. So <laughs> oh, we're I'm going to do show I'm going to do shows based on my book and that'll take the pressure off of me and it will keep me connected with you and I'm very 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 pleased until my travel schedule calms down. You know, and and I'll I'll decide which of my books to undertake first and if you have a preference then make sure to email me right away uh, at radio at visualworkplace.com because I'll start with the next show. 
Yeah. And, you know, from time to time, I'll I'll do a show around some hot topic or some new revelation. Maybe I'll interview my brother, the the poet, my brother, the plumber. Uh, I would love to get Gary on the show again. He has such an interesting mind and such a beautiful, beautiful poetic voice. He spent 35 years as a plumber and then suddenly started sending me poems. And he's on his fourth book now. You can find them on Amazon. His name is Gary Galsworth. He was called in Hoboken, New Jersey, where he had his uh, master practice as a plumber. He was called Gary Diploma. <laughs> so you can find him at GD Plumber, Plumber at AOL.com if you want to send him an email. But look for his books, Gary Galsworth, uh, his poetry books. They're just amazing. They're just amazing. I'm so humbled to be his sister. So thank you. Thank you very, very much from the bottom of my heart. (laughs) All right. Let us move to our fourth in a four-part series on borders. We've talked about borders are not lines. We've talked about the power of borders, their applications. 18, by the way, there were 19 when we started the show, but I was meeting with the trainers in Mexico and they were asking me to explain the difference between nested borders and the double border function. And when I looked at it and I thought, man, there's no difference. They're just different applications of borders, borders within borders. So we, we merge those into simply double function borders. Remember on one of my shows I said sometimes we have a lot and sometimes we have a little, but we never have a lot and a little at the same time so we can use the same space captured in borders. This was the group in Holland. This was Jean and the incomparable Victor. They put their magnificent brains together and they came up with this in, this amazing application. They knew the work content so well that they knew there would be no conflict over the space. They could use the same space. Brilliant, brilliant thinking. Remember, operator-led visuality is a thinking process. Visual thinking is a thinking process first. Whether you are operator, CEO, supervisor, in purchasing, doesn't matter. It's a thinking process first, and then it's a practice of doing. Hmm? So they were thinking. They were doing this like four-dimensional chess. It was mind-blowing. I just hooted when I saw that because I couldn't figure it out. They hadn't put the addresses on yet. We don't call them lines. We don't call them labels because lines and labels are too general. They don't apply borders and addresses function. They function as part of visual thinking. We talked about capturing the pattern of work. Borders are the workhorses of your operations, and they are the workhorses of operators. Operators need answers to those questions, the where question. After we position workplace, I should say, after they position workplace items through smart placement in locations that connect and align function, they nail that alignment through borders. And then after that addresses and if possible, ID labels for everything that casts a shadow, a trio of device categories that embed the visual wear. You start with borders from the floor up the walls and then onto the benches and then into the cabinets and drawers for everything that casts a shadow. Whether it's easy to move or is never going to budge, we put borders around them and we install the pattern of work. Today, and I think that we'll be okay on time, Jeepers, I hope so. Today, I want to talk about the power of borders, but in a, a kind of summative way. I want to talk about it. This is a presentation uh, I made for Greater Boston Manufacturing Partnership in October. I wanted to do a one-hour breakup, breakout session on, on borders because it's so powerful and people really do 
uh, not yet understand what that power is. And so I'm I'm just going to kind of give you this because it's very well organized, and uh, and I I think it makes an impact. And and the the theme is why borders, why bother? And we'll talk about seven elements. Those seven elements are closely connected. If you can imagine a hexagon, a six-sided figure, and then put a hexagon in the middle as an anchor, and around it populate six more hexagons, you'll have like a something that looks like a daisy. You'll remember that I used this construct when I was talking to you about visual leadership and the skill set for executives and the skill set for supervisors and managers. There were seven elements. The one in the middle, a hexagon like a tile with six sides. It's like a bathroom tile, but with six sides, not four. And then populated around it was the were the other six tiles, making seven in all. Creating a synergy, really representing that there was a synergy between these elements, that they work together, and that they have, each of them, an equal and powerful role to play, even though it's different. So those seven elements I'm going to name for you now. And the way I have them situated is that the anchor element is what all management looks for, which is results. So that's the anchor. You're going to get the results by implementing borders. And then at 12 o'clock, so it goes pretty much 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock. It's going around like a clock. Okay. So at 12 o'clock, anchor element is results. We have I-driven, totally critical. Brain function, totally critical. An understanding of information deficits, I'm on number four now, totally critical. Motion, which is the lever at six o'clock, totally critical. Smart placement, you can't have borders if you haven't first identified the relationship between function and the layout, between things which have a function and the flow between things, smart placement. And number seven, the wonderful array of 18 borders. So let's look at results first. Why borders? Why bother? Well, the results. When operators learn about and deploy borders, the result is, yes, cultural, spirited, engaged, contributing workforce. Borders are a thinking element of their implementation and dramatic improvements in KPI. Dramatic improvement, 15 to 30% increase in productivity. The plants, the two plants, there are two more, that we work with in Mexico had at the time 47% on-time delivery. When we arrived, it now is 100%. And it's been that way for about a year. So it's a stabilized 100%. And borders, the visual, which is the premier element of the visual wear, indispensable, is the doorway to operational stability, the answer to the wear question. And as soon as you have operational stability, you have the opportunity of enterprise growth. Hmm? So the first anchor, the anchor element is results. Another, this is the work I'm about to describe, another set of results, which is the work of Annie Hugh, an incredible practitioner, someone we trained and worked with for a number of years. She went off on her own and she did exceptional work. And she shared results with one of her uh, employers, Skyworks Solution, used to be Alpha Industries. And she said, here's one cell, Gwen, but we've got 17 of them. And this is after four months, used to run out of chemicals, an average of one to three times each shift, oh my gosh, 42 hours per week downtime. That's the average. Imagine the range. That range must have been scary. Or almost 22 hours, I'm sorry, 2,200 hours 
of downtime per year, 2,184 hours. The after, after four months, was all stockouts were eliminated. Nobody ran out of parts. There was an increase of productivity to 25%, and you can be sure under Annie's watch that this was meticulous, and there were zero hours of downtown of downtime, I beg your pardon, of downtime per week, per month, zero. When it was rolled up, the reduction in scrap was $2.5 million a year. They had eliminated over 7,000, 7,132 hours of downtime and operator cycle time annually, reduced walking by 54%, and eliminated all rework, period in the plating process. But this, if I may say so, is typical. Then we move to results from Brandt, which is a huge company with over a billion, I bet they're up to a billion and a half combined annual sales. It's five companies, about 1,200 employees. This was the work of Stuart Bellamy, an ace visual trainer and thinker and, you know, wonderful fanatic. Low volume, high mix, very different than Alpha, I'm sorry, than Skyworks Solutions, which is a fairly high volume. They do semiconductors. And he began to apply the methodology. Lean is not always the method of choice. For example, in high mix, low volume, there have been applications of lean, but the real driver in High mix, low volume is information, therefore visuality is the tool of choice. This is also true in the depot where where visuality is the key to increased productivity, safety, um, just plain old enjoyment at work. Visuality is because the highly implementable visual solution mindset that advanced operators really creates an accelerated flow. The operators completely own the floor. And one of the operators said to uh, Stuart, and he shared this with me, he said, you know, visuality is, 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 a, is a quiet revolution. I used to spend, you know, five minutes an hour looking for tools or parts or information or waiting for them or just wandering around, and then I added it up. That five minutes an hour meant that I lost 19.6 days every year, and there's 200 of me on the floor. Well, that means there's 31,360. I don't want to say over 31,000 because he worked it out. 31,360 lost hours every year. So he, he did the math. From the operator's point of view, a quiet revolution Stewart also put together his own figures. This is in Canada, by the way. It's in Regina, and they have distribution centers. Brent has distribution centers throughout Canada and the world. And he's talking about the before and after, the assembly space before operator-led visuality. This is operators owning the change, designing the change, owning the change, Operators become scientists of their own work, scientists of motion, which you know now is the lever. And I'll, I'll, I'll go into some detail when we get to that element in case we have uh, newcomers or it will help to just repeat this. So Stuart was talking about what happened before and after. Assembly space was 11,200 square feet before shrunk to 4,800 square feet after. Throughput was two per week before, eight per week after. Production time was 250 plus hours by average to get the thing done. And then that was reduced in the after to 124 hours for each unit. These are complex, uh, low volume, very high high mix products like earth movers and um, complex machinery that is designed and then 
then produced. It's pretty much a custom design with a lot of moving parts and a big, big footprint, you know, as big as a two-story building sometimes. Yard storage, 5,000 square feet to a virtual elimination of any yard storage. Team involvement before operator-led visuality was good. After, in Stewart's words, immeasurable. He says the process, the more the process became visual, the more production velocity increased. He is a master practitioner. Given a masterful methodology, what a perfect uh, combination. He had tremendous support at the time from one of the owners, owner executives, Jim Semple. Jim was completely aligned uh, with these outcomes. And man, they just, they drove it, they loved it, they nurtured it, they cultivated it, and the operators responded in a way that was astonishing. You already know the Canadian workforce, hard-working, straight-shooting people, lovely sense of humor, sort of, I don't like their puns that much, but they do. Really, really high-quality people who are looking for a way to go to work and find themselves and express themselves and make a contribution. They are tremendous contributors. So the results are there. Let's move to eye-driven. Now we're, we're kind of moving to the mechanics of it. Eye-driven. This is a hallmark of my work. I discovered it so many years ago in the 1980s that if the operators don't own this or the people in the offices don't own it, if the CEO doesn't own his own visual language, you're going to get a much more a confined performance, confined contribution, if any contribution at all. We've spent many shows on that. I've read your poetry. (laughs) This is a hallmark of my work. So let's talk about borders and eye-driven. Operators pull borders into place because they have a burning need to know the clear, visible answers to a simple, repetitive question, which is, where is it? Where are they? Where is he? Where is it? They want flow, not struggle. They want work to make sense. And as far as borders are concerned, borders create the pattern of work. And after that, and when that is in place, the operators flow. The work flows. Mm -hmm. This is about borders. I could do the same thing, not with the visual where, but the visual who, or the visual how, or the visual how many, or the visual when, or the visual what. Burning questions, repeatable questions. They want clear, visible answers. Flow, not struggle. Work that makes sense. The two driving questions are eye-driven questions. What do I need to know? Early, early show in our time together a year ago, I spent, and I did that recently as well, about the eye-driven. What do I need to know that I don't know right now? That's the first question. What do I need to know? What do I need to know right now that I don't know in order to do my work? Hmm? And the second question, what do I need to share? What do I know that others need to know that I need to share so that they can do their work better, more safely, more completely? Hmm? The I-driven questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? You can look at the list of uh, radio shows and you'll see um, that there are two or three or four on specifically on eye driven. It's a point that I drive home because it really opens up both the specificity of the application, but also the ownership. It happens automatically. The visual workplace is an eye driven methodology. Whoever you are, that eye is you. 
This doesn't slow it down. This speeds it up because we are making people independent in their contribution. We are not asking them to engage in a laborious, consensus-based process that forces them to give up their vision so that they can merge with people who have a different vision and find a very, very low common denominator. It just doesn't work that way. My favorite sto- one of my favorite stories about this was a biomedical company, a vast footprint across the world. This particular plant was in New Mexico and had a very gifted um, uh, director of, uh, of strategic improvement, Margie Miramontes. She was incredible. She still is. And uh, she got a hold of our online system. She asked if she could use that, of course, our pleasure. And, and she, she and her training team began to train the operators in this biomedical plant on uh, work that makes sense. And after a while, you know, they're teaching eye-driven. And after a while... The associates went up, knocked on the door, and and asked to speak to Margie and said, Hey, Margie, jeepers, we really like this stuff. Uh, We love this idea about eye-driven, but because it's eye-driven, would you mind if we just teach ourselves? Huh? (laughs) And they wanted to teach themselves. What could Margie say? She had the wisdom and the humility to say, of course. And they taught themselves, and they did everything. And From the time that Margie said yes, which was in May, to November, this group of about 120 people created 1,031 implemented visual solutions. That was in seven months, operator-led. And I'm looking at the chart now. It, It goes up. It looks as though it is cumulative, but it isn't. It's separated. And you know what else they did? They did two other things with this eye-driven feeling in them. They put a star on every single visual device that they created and a map so that you could see, you could go to the place, and these were complex packaging machines. That was one of the main value fields of the array of this work, packaging lines, eight packaging lines. And they put visual devices uh, and a star at every device. That was impressive. And one of the things that we do when we show this impact is that we show first 50 stars, and then we show what 1,031 stars look like when it's all squeezed into uh, the monitor in front of you, the screen. And there's a lot of them, a lot of them. It's just a, a blanket of stars, densely populated. But you know what else they did? They were so enchanted by their own creativity. The ownership was so deep that they wanted to make sure that the good idea on one line got populated to other lines that had the same need. And they created a grid on every single improvement idea and identified whether or not it would populate and that it did across the eight lines, or whether it was a singular idea that was local and just right for that line but not for others, couldn't be adapted. And they created this this array, this complete grid of visual best practices. I have to say I've never seen that done before. I've often thought it should be done, couldn't figure out how to do it, how to teach it. They gave me the solution. And you know what? I never met any of those people. I visited her plant once before she launched, and not again. This was completely without me involved. They had the methodology. They had my voice, my narration. And they had, you know, I really like, I like the way I design learning. It's, it's kind of fun and clear and wonderful examples. High driven. You give people a methodology that is worthy of their brain and their spirit, and they will discover what you haven't seen yet in it because it teaches them a system of thinking and they take pleasure in the function of their brain. I think I'm going to move on right into this couple of more examples that I could go over, but let me move into the third element, which is brain function. Our brain, this is the third element. It's at three o'clock. Let's see, two, I'm sorry, it's at one o'clock. It's at one o'clock. 
uh, in this array of seven elements in the hexagon. Our brain is ever vigilant. Its first job is to keep us safe. In doing its first job, it scans the perimeter. It is obsessed with seeing and checking and understanding. It, in doing that, in seeing and putting two and two together and getting seven, it finds, it seeks and it finds pattern. This is a built-in capacity of the involuntary part of our brain. 50% of our brain function is dedicated to seeing and interpreting visual data. We are visual beings, therefore we live in a visual world, and it's not the other way around. The world has not taught us to be visual. It is visual. The world is visual because we require it. We require it so that we can feel safe and we can find our way. And if you look at any of the community patterns, you will see on our roads and highways, in our supermarkets, in our malls, although less so because that's supposed to be a strolling environment, not a finding environment, everywhere you will see the delivery of visual information in order to facilitate the flow within that environment. This is the engine of visuality. It is also the engine of our civilization. I extend it that far. This is involuntary part of our brain. It is like our heart beating, our breath, our lungs breathing. You don't have any control over it. It happens automatically. It is to keep us safe. And that is why I get to this in a little while. It's so important to have a visual environment because the human brain will seek a pattern even if there is not one. And a great deal of the inventiveness and inventions that we've seen in our civilizations, across all civilizations, have come as a result of this insistence of our brain to understand. And the basis of that is the pattern-seeking power. So that's the engine. And I've spoken to you uh, very recently about the difference between digital and analog information, that the analog information is information that we recognize like the face of a clock, and the digital is there as a backup, which would be a digital reading of 410 as compared to a visual recognition of 410 simply by its profile. Very recently, I invited you to uh, go on Google and look up the miss, the correct, the exact misspelling of these letters. Just write it down. A-O-C-C-D-R-N-I-G. A-O-C-C-D. That's probably all you need. R-N-I-G. It comes from a short, you know, about 40 words. According to research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word are. The only important thing is the first and the last letter that they be in place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. The human mind reads the profile of the ro- of the word. Pretty amazing, huh? So you'll see that in English, and you'll see this. You'll see it in another thirty languages. And as soon as you pop that into all caps, the pattern, the profile goes away, and you you, you got to figure it out instead of recognizing it. This is such a simple but powerful way to convince you of this incredible power of the mind. When a work environment is information poor, we are quite literally lost. We have no navigational anchor that puts us in a state of risk, of high risk, and guaranteed low performance. It is like a desert. You just don't even know how to begin to know where you are, but you do know that you're in danger, girl. You're in danger, girl. One of my favorite lines from Ghost. (laughs) That was Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, yeah. It was great. So we lay down the pattern of work. 
we lay down. Right now, I'm looking at a picture that was done with our Mexican operators. Incredible. They, <laughs> I was gone. You know, I was there about every six weeks or so, and I taught borders, and I said to Lizzie and her team, Moni and Ricardo, I said, okay, we got it. We had gone through the process of identifying a color code system that was very um, functional. There was one from corporate, but we asked for permission to kind of shift to functionality rather than standard colors. And I came back and I saw uh, this, the AccuPress, which had this gorgeous purple and blue and yellow pattern in front of it. And I said, Lizzie, oh, no, you can't let them do it. I, because I saw beauty that was astonishing, and I couldn't accept it that it was also functional. And she said, no, 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 it really works. The operators wanted to separate the machining space in front of the AccuPress into families of parts. They, they have these family of parts, and it helps them so much, I could not talk them out of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy, I learned so much. The visual wear, the borders, these borders lay down the pattern of work. But I want to tell you that that criteria itself, before I move to element four, and clearly I'm not going to be able to finish this today because I'm too long-winded. Oh, I'm, I apologize. So it's going to be the show after next that I'll begin my book, one of the books. That'll give you more time to lean on me. Tell me what you want. But think about it. The visual wear, compare this to your 5S, the visual wear is a criteria-based outcome, and it says a border for everything that casts a shadow, period. If it is, if it casts a shadow, it gets a border. Some of those borders are on the floor, some of them are on the wall, some of them are on work surfaces, some of them are inside and underneath, but it's everything that casts a shadow. That's the criteria. And what you get is the pattern of work, but you also get a criteria by which you can say, yes, the visual wear is in place. And by which you can say, no, not yet, you're close, but no cigar. When we certify areas, the areas will often ask, one area will often ask the operators from another area, hey, can you stop by and just see if we have the visual wear completed? And it's a border and address, and then, if possible, an ID label for everything that casts a shadow. The ID label is um, kind of a little bit looser because you don't put ID labels on consumables even though they cast a shadow. It's like a bowl of M&Ms. You don't put an ID label, even though Mars does, <laughs> on each M&M. Perhaps not the best example. Gwenny's M&M, M&M 1086, right? Because it is a, a consumable, uh, it you put an ID label on the thing that holds it, on the bin or the bucket or the, the holder, yeah? But it's criteria-based. And so th- the criteria dictates the outcome. And when you get that outcome, it's a pattern of work. It's very, very nice. Let's move on to 4 o'clock. Uh, let's see, let's move on to 4 o'clock. Yes, I was at 1 o'clock, now I'm on element 4, and it is information deficit. So all of these pieces work together. This is a kind of overview of how uh, the building blocks of visual thinking and how they are anchored in borders themselves. I'm going to be doing this presentation but for 8 hours. Um, on the elements of what we call work that makes sense, or 5S on steroids is a familiar term for it around here, um, at the Shingo Prize, and then I think at AME in Toronto, in Canada, in the fall, I believe. And there's somewhere else. Ah, yeah, at Toyota in Texas. That's going to be in June. Work that makes sense. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really a kind of salvation for all the years that you've dedicated yourself to making Japanese 5S work and you really want it to work. 
you need to amplify or shift the design elements. And uh, I offer you uh, work that makes sense as as a way to do that. And we're right now we're right in borders. All right, so information deficits. Let me stay on track. Information deficits are missing answers in the workplace. Now think of it. They're missing answers in the workplace. And this is one of the most deceptive and nefarious enemies because they are not there. They are information deficits. It isn't just that they are invisible. They don't exist. They don't exist. When we get to the next element, motion, we will have a lever for digging into the environment that has non-existent enemies, information deficits in it. Do you see how weird that is? Missing answers in the workplace are one of the most deceptive, and I say nefarious, (laughs) enemies because they are not there, and yet they are so powerful. The absence of information is such a powerful contributor to confusion and mix-ups and struggle and deep, deep unhappiness at work. Anger, irritability, exhaustion, existential questions. Why the heck am I here? But the reverse is also true. A workplace that speaks is the liberation of information and therefore the liberation of the human will. When us humans, when we humans, I beg your pardon, I should know better, when we humans have the information we need when and as we need it, when we can just pull that to us in a dance, in a beautiful arced pull, we can then relax and our will can relax and we no longer have to use our will to fight or to find The information flows to us, and we flow with it, and we do our work. We do it safely and completely, and with a sense, well, shall I say joy? That might be too extreme for you, so let's just say no struggle. The enemy is missing information, and the purpose of borders is to put information in place. This is the first formidable weapon against a workplace that does not speak. You can only learn to track the footprint of an absent enemy that is powerful. And we do that through motion. But let me give you a little exercise before I move into motion, element number five. Let me ask you to go to either a before picture, if you don't have any more befores actually existing, in your workplace and see if you can see the information or what I want you to do is look at that bench that either you haven't converted yet to let's even say 5S or to visuality and say to yourself what is the information that makes that bench function and name the activities that go on that bench and see if you can see it. And I'm not talking about visual standards. I'm not talking about simply the documentation of the work content. But I'm talking about a rich tapestry of information working on what I call many categories of visual function, many levels, or open a machine. The machines are sadly bereft of information and say to yourself, open the machine head and say, can I see the information? Can I see what is indispensable? Are there Xerxes? Are they color coded? Do I know the lubrication? Do I know the count? Do I know the toolware? Do I know it without consulting the documentation? Can I see the information? And then in your mind, mind's eye, think about if you could. And I'm thinking about the work of Raquel, who was a master machinist and a master visual thinker at what was at the time Denison Hydraulics. I've spoken to you about him a lot. He was reluctant at first. He just kind of hung back and watched. And one day he changed his mind and he decided to do it. 
And man, he had, he, nobody did it better. Nobody. He just tore up the tarmac. He turned his cell into what he called the no thinking cell. The information was embedded. This was a strong and, you know, pretty mm, strong <laughs> union based workforce where the engineers and the operators were not exactly friendly, comfortable with each other. Union shop, people would bid, and they would always bid to work in Rick's area, and always, uh, they're happy when they got the bid. And he said, people come to my work, and you know what they call it, Gwendolyn? I've told you this before. They call it the no-thinking cell. And I said, because he's a visual thinker, I said, isn't that an insult? He said, nah. You know what they do when they come to my place? They dance. They do the dance of work. This is, these are his words, this machinist. About three years after the conversion was started, Parker Hannafin stopped by and they said, wowzer, because even though it was a traditional organization, it was not lean. There were piles, mountains of whip. That whip was entirely visible, countable, and movable. Slanty borders were invented in that plant. plant. Wonderful applications of person with borders. The borders, the pattern of work was absolute fundamental of the ability of that plant to deliver. Ken Tice was in charge of it. Steve Harvey was the coordinator. Rick L. was one of the operators of the many. This is where Sheila Bowersmith also worked and Michael and Dorothy. So many, many great, great operators. They made the workplace speak. So we will pick this up the next time. And then, by then, you'll have a chance, as I say, to influence our selection of which book to start with. Really, it's between work that makes sense or visual workplace, visual thinking. But at any rate, we are completing the borders, and I want you to be impressed. I want to speak persuasively about this, because a border is not a line. It is not a mathematical connection between two points. It functions in ways that are far beyond our original capacity to understand when 5S came to us so many decades ago. I had a wonderful time with you today. I want to wish you a great journey, whatever your destination, and I hope that visuality is a part of that. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.